The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Revolutionizing Solid Tumor Treatment, Unleashing the Potential of Antibody Drug Conjugates, How to Make the Most of the Latest Clinical Evidence to Enhance Patient Care. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerreview.com forward slash JTS 860. Downloadable slides are also available. Hi everyone, I'm Paolo Tarantino from Dana Farber Cancer Institute, and I'm very pleased to chair this program by PeerView on revolutionizing solid tumor treatment, unleashing the potential of antibody drug conjugates. And I'm joined in this program by an outstanding faculty, and I would love to have each faculty introduce himself. So Dr. Erica Hamilton. Hi, I'm Erica Hamilton. I lead the breast cancer research program at Sarah Cannon Research Institute in Nashville, Tennessee. Happy to join you guys today. Glad to have you here, Erica. Dr. Yelena Janjigian. Hello, uh, my name is Yelena Janjigian. I'm a medical oncologist and chief of GI oncology service at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York. Thanks for having me, Paolo. So glad to have you with us. And Dr. Antonio Passaro. Hi, Paolo. I'm Antonio Passaro. I'm a medical oncologist in the Division of the Thoracic Oncologies in Milan, Italy. Awesome to have you with us. And we're going to talk today about how to augment knowledge on structure, mechanism of action, efficacy and safety profiles and evolving roles of ADCs in solid tumors in particular. And then we're going to try to improve skills in identifying patients with solid tumors who may benefit from treatment with currently approved but also emerging ADCs. And finally, how to enhance ability to effectively manage adverse events associated with different ADCs in patients with solid tumors. And I would like to start with an introduction on this fascinating uh, pharmaceutical class. We know that ADCs are complex pharmaceuticals, but they're composed of three main parts. The, the antibody that, of course, provides the, the affinity and the specificity to the compound, and then the, the linker that allows the binding of the antibody to the payload that is actually the therapeutic compound. Most of the, all of the um, approved ADCs have chemotherapy payloads, but we will see that there's also novel payloads that are being studied. And in general, most of those that are approved are either microtubule inhibitors or DNA damaging agents. In terms of the linker, we know they can be cleavable or non-cleavable, and this can modify the profile of activity and toxicity of the agent. And in terms of antibody, we will also see that they can target different important tumor-associated targets. And then there is an important a factor related to ADCs that is the drug to antibody ratio, meaning how many molecules of payload are, bind, are bound to each antibody, and this can also have a major impact on the activity profile and also toxicity profile of the ADC. And the targets, we know there are some characteristics of the target that make some molecules more suitable for targeting with ADCs. We know that functional targets such as HER2 that somehow have also um, a mitogenic activity can be an import important targets to, that can be utilized for production of ADCs. And then some targets can be shed and it is also important to remember in certain cases. It's important for targets to be surface on the tumor cells and also to be inter because we know that we need to for the payload to, to enter in the tumor cell and internalizing uh, targets are extremely important. And finally, it's important to have a selective expression, a tumor-associated expression. And so once again, the, there is a higher expression in the tumor compared to normal tissue that allows to maximize the therapeutic value and minimize toxicity with ADCs. And there are currently five targets 
that are validated for IDC targeting, HER2, TROP2, Nectin4, tissue factor and folate receptor alpha, and many more are being studied. And, and in general, we're seeing that there are novel generations of ADCs. The first ADC to be approved in 2013 was trastuzumab mtansin, and this had a, an antimicrotubule payload, and it, it had a drug-to-antibody ratio of 3.5 per each antibody, and it had a non-cleavable linker. But we're seeing instead on the left trastuzumab derusecan that we're going to talk in several malignancies. It, it has a topoisomerase 1 inhibitor as a payload, a higher drug-to-antibody ratio up to 8 molecules, per each antibody, a cleavable linker, and it can achieve what we call the bystander effect. And also in terms of TROP2 targeted ADCs, we're seeing novel agents that utilize topoisomers 1 payloads such as SN38 for sasituzumab-govitecan or DXD for darapotamab-deruxican with drug-to-antibody ratios of 4.1 for darapotamab-deruxican or 8.1 for sasituzumab-govitecan. In general, there is a rapidly expanding landscape of novel ADCs and even targeting HER3. There is still no approved anti-HER3 ADC, but we know that there's patritumab derusecan. There is an agent of which we're going to talk today that is highly potent, has got a drug-to-antibody ratio of 8.1 mol- 8 to 1 molecules of DXD per each patritumab antibody, and there's intriguing activity in several tumor types. So right now we have six approved ADCs. You, you, you see them here, and they're approved for treating several different malignancies, but most of these are being studied in, in mo- more indications than the one for which they are approved, and we're going to try to recapitulate the latest data in, in the field, but I would like just to touch upon the mechanism of action of ADCs, and I think it's important to recognize that ADCs act in many different ways. We know that they can have an immune-related activity that is uh, related to the FC stimulation of immune cells. They can also disrupt receptor dimerization and activation. For instance, we know that TDM1 or TDXD can bind to HER2 and can have an anti-HER2 activity, just like trastuzumab. But then we know that it's extremely important for these agents to reach a tumor cell and be internalized so they can de- deliver the payload into the tumor cell. And finally, most of the novel ADCs have got membrane permeable payloads that can also diffuse outside of the targeted cells and reach um, tumor cells that are nearby, even if they don't express the targeted antigen, what we call, once again, the bystander effect. So they're very complex in the way they work, but in general, what we're seeing across tumor types is that they tend to work better than traditional chemotherapy. And we'll see many examples in the next program. So without further ado, I would like to introduce the first uh, chapter of this program on ADCs, latest updates on ADCs in breast cancer by Dr. Erica Hamilton. Erica, please. So I'm going to go through antibody drug conjugates in breast cancer. And uh, luckily in breast cancer, we have had these uh, compounds around for quite some time, but there's been some important changes. So let's start with our historical antibody drug conjugate. Uh, This is TDM1, and this was the AMELIA trial. Uh, This was granted uh, for approval by the FDA really about a decade ago uh, based on a head-to-head comparison in really the uh, third-line setting against capecitabine uh, lapatinib, and we can see an improvement from 6.4 up to 9.6 months. We did see some differences with TDM1. It doesn't have a cleavable linker. It doesn't have as much bystander effect, certainly, and it also has a lower DAR. So this brings us to the new antibody drug conjugates, trastuzumab-deruxtecan. 
On the left on this slide, you see Destiny Bresto 1. This was a phase two trial and really was quite shocking at the time with the profound activity that we saw across HER2 positive metastatic disease. This led to approval in very late 2019. And then subsequently on the right, you see how trastuzumab deruxtecan came up into the second line setting in a head-to-head trial against TDM1, which was our current standard of care in the second line. You see much deeper responses with trastuzumab deruxtecan, and you see a hazard ratio that's really quite impressive of 0.33 with a significant progression-free survival improvement with trastuzumab deruxtecan. This is new data that we saw out of ESMO uh, this year in 2023, and it was a pooled analysis of Destiny Bresto 1, Destiny Bresto 2, which was our third line study, and Destiny Bresto 3 that we just reviewed in the second line, looking at those patients that had brain metastases across these compared to the control arms in both Destiny Bresto 2 and Destiny Bresto 3. We can see here that on the left for trastuzumab deruxtecan, that we see uh, intracranial response rates upwards of 40 to 50%. And when we go over on the right and look at the comparator pool, you see uh, response rates, uh, depending on whether patients have untreated active brain mets around 12% or treated stable brain mets at 27%. So certainly for those patients with brain metastases, having almost 50% of uh, patients having shrinkage, and quite a few of these being complete response uh, is quite uh, provocative. Here we see best percentage change from baseline in the sum of diameters of brain tumors. So you see that these aren't minor responses. They're very deep, and you can see that trastuzumab deruxtecan really is very clearly outperforming the comparator arms, which remember are capecitabine combos uh, in Destiny Bresto 2 and was TDM1 in Destiny Bresto 3. So let's go through Destiny Bresto 4. This was our phase 3 study of trastuzumab deruxtecan versus single agent treatment of physician's choice chemotherapy for those patients that have tumors that would be classified as HER2 low. Now remember that this would include both hormone receptor positive and triple negative as classically defined. These patients had all seen one to two prior lines of chemotherapy in the metastatic setting. And for our patients that had hormone receptor positive disease, remember that they had already exhausted all of their endocrine therapy. If you look between the blue and orange box, you'll also note that the vast majority of patients in this study did have hormone receptor positive disease, with the minority being classically defined as triple negative. On the left, you can see progression-free survival uh, almost doubling with trastuzumab deruxtecan compared to treatment of physician's choice. And on the right, when we add back in those patients with triple negative disease for all patients, you really don't see uh, the magnitude of benefit shrinking at all. In fact, it looks really quite strong. This led to uh, the approval of trastuzumab deruxtecan for HER2-low metastatic disease in August of 2022. I've had a lot of people ask, well, did we just never look at HER2-low before? And in fact, we did. Uh, I remember in a San Antonio auditorium seeing a very large adjuvant trial of trastuzumab uh, compared um, for those patients that have HER2-low expression, and we saw absolutely no benefit. So really, the difference is not that we thought to look at this. The difference is we now have drugs like trastuzumab deruxtecan that can target cells even with very low expression. So let's look at the updated survival results from Destiny Bresto 4. Again, this data was presented at ESMO. 
You can see progression-free survival in the hormone receptor positive cohort, 4.2 months up to 9.6 months for a hazard ratio of 0.37. And in all comers, the hazard ratio really remains the same at 0.36 with our patients with triple negative being added back in. So let's look specifically at this triple negative cohort because I think it gets a lot of discussion. Certainly it was a minority of patients, less than 100 patients. But when we look on the left at overall survival or on the right of progression-free survival, these patients with triple negative disease are clearly uh, having benefit from trastuzumab deruxtecan. Overall survival essentially improving from eight months up to almost a year and a half. Um, I'm sorry, overall survival and progression-free survival on the right improving from right at about three months to over six months. So in safety summary, uh, trastuzumab deruxtecan in HER2 low disease does not behave any different than it does in HER2 high disease. Nausea really is our most prominent side effect. It's considered a moderately emetogenic and requires at least a two, if not three, uh, anti-emetic uh, drug prophylaxis regimen. And we also have to watch out for ILD. Across studies, we see ILD rates somewhere between 10 to 15 percent, but it is getting much less frequent for us to see more severe ILD or fatal cases of ILD. But remember that the recommendation is to hold uh, even for grade one asymptomatic ILD and for grade two ILD or greater uh, to um, stop drug and not resume. So let's go through another flavor of antibody drug conjugate. This is sasituzumab govitekin, and this was the phase three ascent trial for metastatic triple negative breast cancer. So you see this is a very clear design, sasituzumab govitekin. It's given on days one and day eight every 21 days versus physician's choice single agent chemotherapy. And our choices here were capecitabine, aribulin, gemcitabine, or venerelbine. Primary endpoint was progression-free survival. So here we see progression-free survival on the left, overall survival on the right, and these are patients without brain metastases. You see PFS improving from less than two months up to 5.6 months, and overall survival essentially almost doubling in the six-month range up to a year. I think another thing that really stands out here is how poorly single-agent chemotherapy performs for our patients with triple negative disease with a PFS of less than two months, really arguing for these new drugs in this setting. Based on uh, this trial, the FDA granted regular approval for sasituzumab govitekin for patients with triple negative breast cancer that had seen at least two systemic therapies, and at least one of these must have been in the metastatic setting. Sasituzumab govitekin also goes beyond triple negative breast cancer, and we're seeing this trend across breast cancer for our antibody drug conjugates kind of straddling these uh, typical uh, disease divides. So this is Tropixo2. Uh, this was sasituzumab govitekin in an almost an identical design, but this time looking at hormone receptor positive disease. Still, patients had seen at least two, no more than four lines of chemotherapy in the metastatic setting, and they had all seen endocrine therapy and CDK4-6. So if you functionally think about this, patients exhausted their endocrine therapy, they'd had at least two chemos, and then they were coming on to the trial. 
So you see progression-free survival hazard ratio 0.65 and statistically significant. And I think what's really telling is some of these landmark analyses. For example, the 12-month PFS rate is in the single digits at about 8% for chemo and is upwards of over 20% with sasituzumab gavotecan. When we look down in terms of overall survival, uh, we also see benefit here um, for sasituzumab gavotecan. So based on this, we had approval for sasituzumab in triple negative breast cancer in 2020 for hormone receptor positive in 2023. So what's new? What's new? Uh, we have multiple new antibody drug conjugates in development. We saw some uh, data at ESMO for DATO DXD. This is another trope 2 targeting antibody drug conjugate but you can think of it almost as the fusion between trastuzumab deruxtecan and sasituzumab gavotecan. It's targeting trope 2 like sasituzumab gavotecan, but it has the payload of trastuzumab deruxtecan, so it is a deruxtecan payload. This was tropian Bresto-1. These patients had hormone receptor positive disease and, again, had already been treated with chemotherapy in the metastatic setting. This was DATO-DXD versus investigator's choice chemotherapy. You can see progression-free survival, again, improved by several months, 4.9 up to 6.9, with a hazard ratio of 0.63. We also see response rates uh, improved from 22% up to 36%. Obviously, overall survival data um, was not mature, but was favoring data DXD. So what about the side effects here? And I'll really caution you that it's very easy to lump all of our drugs in classes. We have tyrosine kinase inhibitors. We have monoclonal antibodies. We want to put all of the antibody drug conjugates in one bucket. But really, these are very distinct drugs, uh, distinct targeting, distinct payload, distinct linkers. And you see here that DATO DXD has a very different side effect profile than trastuzumab deruxtecan, for example. Uh, we see stomatitis uh, with DATO DXD. We typically use a steroid mouthwash to help with this. We can see ocular events uh, such as dry eyes, and some patients actually do discontinue for this. And the ILD rate is actually lower with DATO DXD uh, compared to trastuzumab deruxtecan. This was also provocative data presented uh, at ESMO. This was with Begonia. Uh, this is a combination of DATO DXD with Dervalimab in the first-line setting. So asking the question for those patients that are seeing immunotherapy for their triple negative breast cancer, can we substitute out naked chemotherapy and put in an antibody drug conjugate? We see here progression-free survival was 13.8 months. Duration of response was about 15 and a half months, certainly very encouraging, uh, but was a single arm here. In terms of adverse events, we really don't see an exacerbation of events we would anticipate with uh, um, checkpoint inhibitors and immune toxicity. We see nausea, we see stomatitis, we see alopecia, all coming from the DATO uh, DXD. There's also another antibody drug conjugate on the horizon that we've seen quite a bit of data from. This is patritumab deruxtecan. This is targeting HER3 and, again, has uh, the deruxtecan payload. Um, this is BRE354. We presented this at ASCO this past year. 
This shows the best percent change in sum of diameters over on the left based on HER3 expression. And if you look at these colors, you can see that we're seeing a very similar phenomenon to sasituzumab gavotecan, where expression of trope 2 or expression of HER3 really does not seem very important to have response. So this similar um, idea that it really takes very little of the target uh, for one of these antibody drug conjugates to work. Remember that this is a druxtecan payload, so again, our most common side effect is nausea, but you'll note that the rates are lower, about 50% any grade, and grade 3-4 being 3% or less. I don't know whether this drug truly has less nausea. I think we've actually gotten better at using our pre-meds. Remember that in the Destiny breast trials, uh, that anti-emetic prophylaxis was not required, and in this study, we all recognize that nausea was going to be a side effect and more prophylactic drugs were used. So this is really encouraging to see uh, the rates of adverse events being uh, lower here. We also only see 1.7% of our patients having ILD. So this also um, is very re uh, reassuring. We also saw additional results from Icarus Bresto-1, as well as Sulti taught HER3. Um, this was in various uh, settings um, in early breast cancer, but really showing profound responses in Sulti taught HER3. Even to one dose of patritumab deruxtecan had a 30% response rate. So really speaking to um, the powerful uh, nature of these compounds. Thank you so much, Erica, for this terrific overview of the ADCs in development or approved for treating breast cancer. Uh, I am biased, but I do feel that breast is leading the way in the development of ADCs. But at the same time, I feel that one of the most exciting components of the ADC field is that they are leading to benefit also in other disease areas, such as in aggressive thoracic tumors. And I would like to invite Dr. Antonio Passaro from the European Institute of Oncology to, to, to review the, the, the landscape of ADCs for lung cancer. Antonio, please. Thank you. Thank you, Paolo. So uh, I agree with you. So lung cancer is a one step behind consider the development of ADC in the breast cancer and the other disease. But of course, the treatment scenario is a very rapidly changing, including these kind of new molecules. So I will try to focus on the new development in last year that was presented last year with ADC in lung cancer. And first of all, the data that was presented in that bad way was the data of the destiny lung 2. So we know that the first ADC that was approved in lung cancer was a trastuzumab derustecan for patients with a HER2 mutant non-small cell lung cancer with the, the uh, first data that was published in New England Journal of Medicine by Bob and Lee and co-authors. And there we, we saw that with the dose of 6.4, more or less the over-response rate of 50%, and there was a, a rate of ILD and 26%. So starting from that point, there was the idea to try to compare two different kinds of doses to evaluate efficacy and safety in particular settings. So at the destiny line two was an, a, a trial, a randomized trial to evaluate the two different doses, 5.4 and 6.44 trastuzian deruxin in patients with metastatic HER2 mutant non-small cell lung cancer. So we can see from a key eligibility criteria that the patient was allowed to receive in the past, also including treatment with uh, chemotherapy and immunity checkpoint inhibitors with the EGA performance state of 01. So the results in this trial that was uh, not powerful uh, comparable analysis, uh, we can see that uh, over-response rate was uh, very, very similar with an increase for 5.4 uh, months with a 53% compared to 42% for the previous dose of 
4. And the median DOR was not reaching both the uh, two arms. This data was uh, very interesting also when we focus on the treatment dose that uh, was related to the uh, drug-related ILD. And here we can see that for two patients that receive the 5.4 milligram per kilo dose, uh, the incidence of ILD was a significantly lower compared to the dose of 6.4. And these, of course, are very interesting data. Consider that also after FDA this uh, October, also EMA extended the indication of testudinoderoxia for patients with lung cancer in metastatic disease F2 mutant after first-line setting. Moving forward, we can see that I think that this is one of the most interesting data that was published for the subgroups of patients with R2 mutant disease. In this update analysis that was presented by Pasijani in Singapore, we can see that the activity or testudinoderoxia in both the doses was a independent from the kind of treatment that was uh, received before also tyrosine kinase inhibitors for the present or not of the amplification because here of course we are focusing only for patients with R2 mutant disease and this did of course uh, uh, push the this drug in the clinical setting so looking forward at the present time we have a lot of data preliminary data in many, many different settings with a different kind of ADC. And I would like to discuss with you only the major advances that uh, we present in the last uh, two years uh, in this particular setting. The first data was related to the tropium pantumo one So that was a trial that included different kinds of disease with a selected cohort for patients with a nosmod cell lung cancer that was uh, unselected for trop 2 expression, but tissue was required for a retrospective analysis about the top two expression that I think is very interesting. In this particular setting, we can see a patient was randomized in three different cohorts to receive three different doses of the, the, this ADC. So we have a four milligrams of data, six milligrams, eight, eight milligrams. When we focus on the activity, we can see, of course, that the regardless of the kind of patient that was enrolled, including also patients with um, driver alteration, in particular EGFR mutant disease for common alteration, exon 19 deletion or point mutation in exon 21, we can see that the over-response rate global was more or less 35%. And this, of course, is very interesting data considered the unselected patient population, and of course, the heavily pretreated patient population. So. Uh, considering this data, looking forward, the different kind of dose was confirmed more or less with the same activity. That is, of course, is a good approach looking forward for the uh, to management of toxicity and to deliver the best dose to the clinical setting. And uh, when we focus, as also discussed by Eric, I mean, before to the toxicity, we can see that the major kind of toxicity was nausea sarmatitis that uh, was related for the measure for the payload. And the rate of grade three was not so higher when we consider uh, three different doses, four milligrams, six milligrams, eight milligrams. And the rate of ILD was, uh, of course, identified here, higher for eight milligrams per kilo, but uh, lower, significantly lower for the two different kind of dose. And uh, in the same kind of the program for the TROP expression, so using DATO, we can see that also this year was uh, presented the data of a tropion line 2 study that evaluated always patients with advanced metastatic nosmod cell lung cancer 
that receive uh, or not receive a first-line treatment. And then here we can see data for a patient that uh, was candidate to receive a triplet with the carboplatin, pemetrexid, immune checkpoint in India. So uh, very, very interesting data. So, uh, and the results that of course are preliminary for all patients and for focus for patients with the first-line setting, we can see an over-response rate in first-line setting overall of over 50%. And with a doublet and 57% with a triplet. So uh, these data are preliminary, but they're very interesting and move also our attention to other kind of uh, groups. For example, here we have the initial results for the troving lung four with the combination of DATO with the two different kinds of dose, four milligram and six milligrams with the volumab. And these results was presented during the World Lung Cancer Congress in Singapore. And we can see that overall, there is a, there is a great disease control rate, more than 90% with an over-response rate for doublet of 50% for triplet of 75%. So response, of course, is interesting, but when we are focusing on the use of mini-checkpoint inhibitor in non-small cell lung cancer in advanced disease, of course, our major endpoint is to evaluate the long-term efficacy, and these data are preliminary at the present time to have the power for us to understand very well these, these results, but globally show a very interesting signal. In addition, I think that one of the most interesting presentation of the year for patients with lung cancer in the preliminary setting was presented this year during the ESMO from Luis Pazares, and that showed the activity of DATO in patients pretreated with the non-small cell lung cancer, including patients with squamous disease and squamous disease, uh, that uh, also include uh, genomic alteration, EGFR, ALK, ROS, and Trugavirafmet, or RET. So here we can see that globally, the uh, over-response rate was 35%, and for patients with EGFR mutant disease, the over-response rate was uh, and about 43%. Of course, these are very interesting signal. Consider that in the protruded setting for patients with a mutant alteration, there are no major uh, new advances, excluding mariposa to trial. And many ADC here are, of course, uh, pushing to show the very interesting data. But of course, the major data that was presented this year for the lung cancer fields was those that was related to the Tropion Lung 1 study. Uh, this was the most important trial in the field of ADC because it's the first randomized phase three trial that evaluated the use of uh, an ADC DATO um, with a dose of six milligrams per kilo compared to the standard of care in this particular setting that is a dose taxa. Uh, patient was included in with receiving one or two primal lines. And also here, patient was included with the squamous and non-squamous histology. It also in presence of a driver alteration, AGA, that uh, was uh, considered after the uh, first-line target therapy and chemo. The primary point for tropiolang one for progression-free survival, and the, the second uh, primary point was over-survival. Secondary point of lack of the response, over-response over rate, DOR, and safety. The major results show that in the intention to treat population, including squamous and squamous histology, uh, the benefit of the, uh, for progression-free survival was uh, uh, achieved with an answer ratio of 
75. But when we lo look to the exclusive benefit of our progression free supplier, we can see that the benefit is not so strong. We have a 4.4 months for Dato and 3.7 months for Docetaxi with a no response rate, double the, ra the rate of Docetaxi, 26 compared to 13, and a DOR, seven months compared to 5.5 months. But uh, it was very interesting that the investigator focused on the subgroups analysis and uh, it was uh, incredible to see that the use of data in patients with squamous disease was uh, not effective. And also this was confirmed in the calvary carbs. So we can see in the right part of the box, PFS for patients with squamous and osmal cell lung cancer treated where the progression-free survival for 22.8 months compared to 3.9 months for Josephaxa, so a negative impact here. Alternatively, for patients with non-squamous disease, with or without the eye alteration, we can see that the progression-free survival was 5.6 months compared to 3.7 months. And of course, this data moved to an increase of other ratio of 0.36 in this particular sector. At the time of the presentation during the ESMO, the data for overall survival was not mature with a median follow-up of 11 months. And of course, here we need, uh, we need more, more time to understand the impact of these particular drugs. But the preliminary trend was a positive with an average ratio of 0.77 for patients with a non-squamous histology. And very interesting here is also to consider the safety. So the first feeling when we consider ADC is to generally are more toxic about toxicity uh, of standard chemotherapy. But the data of uh, DATO versus Docetaxel were very comfortable in this way with a reduced rate of grade three or more compared to standard Docetaxel with a less toxicity associated with those reduction and also associated with the discontinuation. And this is very, very useful in clinical setting considered that the docetaxel is a very old fashioned tracks with a not very good safety profile. And when we characterize the um, adverse events of special interest, we can see that the stomatitis or mucoritis was a those are more uh, um, related with discontinuation, but of course with a very, very low rate of discontinuation. Dry eyes was uh, very common for patients that to receive uh, a DATO, and uh, there was uh, no other major toxicity that was uh, related here, but there was a very interesting, of course, uh, confirmed that uh, some patients developed ILD, and ILD, of course, is uh, one of the major uh, toxicity that we are focusing on to improve uh, in a significant way in the clinical setting. Moving forward to other kind of drugs, we can see that uh, as discussed in the uh, previous uh, talk in the um, breast cancer, also substitutes that Govitio, I mean, one of the most uh, interesting ADC in the field of non-small cell lung cancer. Also in this trial, uh, the substitution of Govitio was uh, evaluated in patient with advanced nosmot cell lung cancer after first line setting in the relapsed disease and the patient was unselected for trap 2 expression but also in this trial tissue were requested for a retrospective analysis evaluating trap 2 by immunochemistry and the first results in my opinion was not very strong because we can see that in the court of a patient with a nosmot cell lung cancer the over-response rate was 60.7%, uh, 
with a median progression-free survival of 5.4 months. Of course, data interesting to move in the development, and, and now there is a phase three trial ongoing in this particular setting compared to docetaxel that uh, maybe we'll be able to see in the next year of presentation. And when, when we focus also in the toxicity, we can see generally toxicity are very common for related to saturated gravidian, anemia, diarrhea, fatigue, and alopecia was the first four as an incidence safety analysis for this particular drugs that showed a very low rate of grade three and four. Moving forward, also for this kind of drugs, at the present time there are many trials ongoing to evaluate the combination with immune checkpoint inhibitors according to the histology, squamous and non-squamous. And here in the HAVOC2 trial that was presented in this uh, uh, preliminary analysis during the World Lung Cancer Congress in Singapore, we can see that the combination in patient with the PDL1 more than 50% achieve over response rate of 69%. Um, in patient with less than 50% of PDL1, he had a Mm, over response rate of 44%. So, of course, these are preliminary data, interesting the feed, interesting for efficacy, but we need, of course, to balance this with the safety. And, of course, here we need to wait as for the tropian study and more follow up and then long term efficacy, uh, considering that the standard care, chemo plus IU, OIU alone for patients with more than 50% of PDL1 is very, very effective, uh, considering the long term survival. And the uh, one of the last block of the presentation, I think, is the most interesting. So, as we discussed also in the presentation by Paolo, one of the most attractive ADC at the present time is a patrizumab deruxecan. is an anti-air three drug that is uh, crucial for patients with EGFR mutant nosmal cell lung cancer. So we know that air three is a wide expressing patient with uh, nosmal cell lung cancer, in particular with EGFR alteration. And then the Ertinalang one was evaluated the activity of uh, patrizumab deruxin in patient that uh, was uh, pretreated uh, with uh, egfr kinase inhibitor as a platinum-based chemotherapy. The results was uh, very interesting when we focus on the over-response rate to consider that uh, this is a third line in a setting where only docetaxelay is the standard with a more or less 30% of over-response rate but showing a very interesting progression-free survival, progression-free survival of 5.5 months with the initial data of over-surviving 11.0 months. These data achieve, in my opinion, a very interesting impact when we focus also on patients with brain metastasis. We know that patients with EGFR alteration are very uh, common to develop brain metastasis during the natural history of disease. And here the investigators show that uh, the patient with brain metastasis achieve more or less the same efficacy with those without brain metastasis. And this is very interesting. And also it's very interesting because the activity or patrizumab deruxing at the present time was shown in the red box of the slide was confirmed regarding the kind of EGFR alteration, regarding the kind of EGFR resistant mechanism dependent on, dependent on, on target alteration. It also regarded the level of air 3 expression. And here we can see that uh, an investigator show whether the activity on the brain for those the patient that receive patrizumab uh, deruxin. Of course, these are preliminary data, and uh, at the present time there is a one of uh, 
major trial in the field of lung cancer that are evaluating the use the uh, is evaluating the use of patritumab versus uh, platinum basic chemotherapy in EGFR positive non-small cell lung cancer. That is the trial Irtina lung two that was uh, confirmed also because the uh, if the safety of these drugs was a very comfortable. So we can see that um, generally the rate of the, the toxicity is uh, related to grade one, grade two, and the, the most common was anesia on trandocytopenia that was a no clinical impact from this particular setting. Thank you for your attention. Thank you so much to you, Antonio, for this wonderful overview of the emerging ADCs in lung cancer. And I do feel that some of these may become standard of care in the future based on the data that we see. But now I would like to shift gear a little bit toward the different types of malignancies, GI tumors that have proven in the past hard to treat with ADCs. TDM1 has failed in gastric cancer and has shown little activity in colorectal cancer, but we have novel, interesting data with ADCs in, the, in all these tumors. And I cannot think of somebody better than Dr. Janjigian to review this data. Please, Yelena. Thank you for that, this kind introduction and for the opportunity to continue the discussion. Uh, and you're right. Uh, in some ways, the new generation of antibody drug conjugates have really uh, reignited the interest in HER2 inhibition in this disease. And it all started with Destiny Gastric 01. We have given up on trastuzumab beyond progression and on HER2-directed therapies in second-line setting for this disease. Uh, there were negative study uh, one after the other with TDM1, lipatinib, trastuzumab combination, and so forth. And with Destiny Gastric 01, for the first time, uh, explored the use of trastuzumab directs TCAM, uh, given at a higher dose than what we give in, lung, in breast cancer at 6.4 mg per kg. Uh, compared to a physician's choice chemotherapy, which in our disease is irinotecan or paclitaxel, uh, in the um, third-line uh, randomized setting, this was a two-to-one randomization uh, for patients who were HER2 overexpressing tumors. Uh, and it's interesting uh, for in this uh, study, uh, confirmation of biopsy before going on to second-line therapy to confirm HER2 positivity was not mandated. Um, and patients were selected by uh, archival tissue for HC3 plus or HC2 plus ish positive. Also, there was a HER2 low or intermediate cohort of patients included, uh, treated with IHC2 plus or ish and ish positive uh, or HC1 plus cohort. But firstly, uh, focusing on the, um, the primary cohort, we were able to uh, demonstrate a meaningful improvement uh, in overall survival and also in response. This was the first study to show hazard ratio of 0.6 with a third-line setting OS of 12.5 months with TDXT versus chemotherapy. And for progression-free survival, uh, meaningfully improved overall response rate of 51%. Uh, and this is uh, not in, uh, you know, confirmed uh, after trastuzumab progression her two positive tumors. Uh, so this was uh, obviously a practice-changing study a New England Journal of Medicine paper uh, published and in the United States immediately changed practice. Uh, and what's interesting, the label did not restrict uh, use of this regimen in third-line setting only, but also uh, allowed to treat patients after trastuzumab progression in second line because of the robustness of the data. Um, and the FDA does recommend uh, re-biopsying tumors at the time of progression on trastuzumab uh, to confirm presence of HER2 because uh, we know in our disease in particular, up to 30% of patients lose HER2 uh, expression in their tumor. This was data-based 
um, our, at our work at MSKCC. So what do we know about uh, Trusty's map Droxtecan? Certainly it works uh, in, in third-line setting, and we didn't think a, a, a randomized uh, study would accrue well in the United States, so we did a small uh, single-arm study. This was a lar relatively large study. Almost 80 patients were treated in, uh, globally in different sites in the United States and uh, Europe. Uh, and then this study was slightly different where we mandated a pretreatment biopsy before the patient went on and a central confirmation of HER2 after progression of trastuzumab-based uh, therapy. And uh, what we demonstrated, again, is a very similar response rate, even in second-line setting, a 42% response rate uh, in second-line setting uh, with a median duration of response of 10.2 months. Uh, Progression-free survival, very simple in second-line as it was in third-line, um, highlighting the importance of disease biology uh, and the differences in outcomes in East versus West. Uh, to me, this is not surprising. There's a similar cohort of patients that respond to TDXD, whether or not it's in second line and third line. The benefit of doing it in second line and earlier is obviously you avoid attrition because as you progress on many lines of therapy, we lose more and more patients. Our patients in GI malignancies are not as fit as breast cancer patients, so they don't receive as many treatments uh, and many lines. So uh, Destiny Gastric Zero Two, essentially this was a Lancet Oncology paper, confirmed the findings from Dustin and Gastric 03. Uh, and these are the outcomes uh, by OS and PFS, uh, 12 months OS, which is very good for a second-line gastric study. Unfortunately, we don't do as well in this disease um, still as we had hoped, and progression-free survival 5.6 um, is very respectful. So based on this, uh, the FDA already approved this trastuzumab Durax TCAN. This was approved in January 2021, of course, in some ways, it limited uh, the ability of clinical trial randomization. Uh, and uh, although T uh, Destiny Gastric 04 is open, um, it's not open in the United States because our patients uh, now are able to get second line TDXT and they do not want to be randomized to Ramtaxel, which is the st uh, standard approach uh, in our disease, uh, because once you confirm that the tumor is HER2 positive, the doctors and the patients are really uh, excited about getting this drug uh, in second-line setting. But uh, Destiny Gastric 04 is accruing uh, in Asia. Well, what about colon cancer? And it's important to note the difference in biology in GI tumors in general, where uh, KRAS amplifications and mutations do occur uh, uh, at a rate of 20 to 30% in HER2-positive tumors, and they limit the effect of her 2 uh, inhibition, spe specifically, typically with trastuzumab or lipatinib-based combinations, where in, in colon cancer, particularly, a third of the tumors have KRAS mutations. And so uh, Destiny uh, CRC looked at combination, uh, look at, uh, at trastuzumab direct stican again at 6.4 milligrams per kilogram uh, at, uh, in HER2-selected population uh, in cohort A, uh, by IHC3 plus and IHC2 plus ish positive. Where in colon cancer, you know, uh, we're so used to characterizing outcomes by mutations. Uh, overexpression of HER2 until recently has not been uh, widely accepted, but now is done at least in academic institutions, but not in all uh, centers. Um, and uh, in cohort B here, again, it's uh, HER2 low uh, expressing tumors. So what is uh, destiny gastric, uh, destiny? colorectal 01 showed. 
once again, very nice looking waterfall plot. Almost chance of, uh, you know, the overall response rate very similar, 45%. Uh, with this control rate of uh, 83% overall survival. Um, as we see here for IHC3+, and IHC2+, ish positive tumors, uh, is uh, the is the winner here uh, with this regimen. Uh, and we have uh, really robust data to support use of this regimen um, in, this, uh, in this patient population. We also have preliminary data and efficacy data uh, presented recently, suggesting that this trastuzumab uh, deroxytecan works uh, irrespective of um, KRS alteration. So this is an important one for us because right now for KRS mutant uh, HER2-positive tumors, all, the, all other strategies have not worked well. So uh, what about Destiny uh, CRC02? This was a randomized uh, trial um, where patients were uh, randomized to receive Either arm A or arm uh, uh, arm one or two with higher dose of TDXT. Uh, we know that uh, TDXT is associated with social lung disease in colon cancer and in gastric cancer. Not so much uh, has not been as big of a signal as in um, lung and breast, where the tumors are heavily uh, patients are more heavily pretreated. But for our patients, it is also. Uh, there's a risk for grade five effects, so we try to avoid that um, at higher doses if possible. Um, and here are the efficacy results uh, looking at whether or not, um, you know, we do need a higher dose of therapy. Uh, and the data suggests that we may not, right? So for um, uh, total uh, response rate uh, is very similar, median duration of response. Um, actually, for uh, the stage one patients, was the highest in this cohort of 5.4 mg per kg given every uh, three weeks. What about median progression of survival? Median progression for survival is 5.8 months, uh, which again for our cohort of patients is not um, is not unreasonable. It's it's actually good, um, and so this drug definitely has efficacy both with uh, uh, response and durability of response, median overall survival of 13.4 months. So uh, in, in uh, the the 0-2 data really concern, uh, showed us that anti-tumor activity is observed both at both doses, and so pointing that to the fact that perhaps as we're moving toward combined uh, blockade in these patients to help augment HER2, um, especially when it's uh, in conjunction with other uh, oncogenic drivers, uh, perhaps we could go with lower dose of TDXT. Um, and the RAS status, this is where uh, we're particularly interested in seeing. Um, so the objective response rate was observed in patients with KRAS mutant tumors, uh, which is really, really exciting to see biologically for our patients because that's a, a typically very aggressive disease biology. Uh, treatment-related adverse events, and I think what many doctors and oncologists uh, and uh, uh, patients forget, this is chemotherapy. So the side effect profile is related mostly to chemotherapy. For our disease, it's diarrhea, nausea, neutropenia, um, and certainly uh, immune-related uh, interstitial lung disease is something to consider. So uh, that was, that's uh, an exciting opportunity for our treatment uh, uh, landscape, and it continues to evolve.
Thank you so much for this terrific summary of the activity of ADCs in gastrointestinal malignancies. So, so, so great to see that they're starting to be even approved. Although it's interesting that they have like different doses for gastric and colorectal that we're starting to see randomized trials. And I do think that this is the way forward to try to understand how to utilize ADCs. So I would like to utilize the last few minutes of this program to kind of review pantumor opportunities of utilizing ADCs to treat cancer patients and also some future directions. So I think one very interesting trial that was presented this year and published recently on JCO is the Destiny Pantumor O2 that despite the name was the first of the two pantumor trials to be presented. And this was a trial of TDXT at 5.4 milligram per kilogram dose utilized for treating patients with advanced solid tumors that had received prior standard of care and then there were several cohorts for cancers for which we really didn't have much data with TDXT, such as cervical cancer, endometrial cancer, ovarian, biliary tract, pancreatic bladder, and other tumors, which mostly included salivary gland cancer. And this was first presented by Fundamerik Bernstam at ASCO this year, and then updated with survival data at ESMO a few days ago. And so what we can see is that the objective response rate with TDXD among patients with solid tumors that express HER2 at an immunohistochemical score of 2 plus or 3 plus was overall 37%. This is the last row in blue that you can see. But what was very intriguing was that TDXD achieved a much higher activity in patients with diseases that had 3 plus uh, HER2 immunohistochemical staining compared to, three, to 2 plus. And this was seen across diseases. You can see in cervical cancer, the, the overall response rate is 50%, but if you look at the 3-plus core, you have up to 75%. Same for endometrial cancer, where in the 3-plus core, you have up to 84% objective response rate, and you can see this pattern across tumors, unfortunately, only in pancreatic cancer, one of the hardest-to-treat cancer out there. We still don't see enough activity, not even with TDXD. In terms of durational response, this was approximately one year across the overall study, but up to 22 months in the IHC 3 plus cohort. And as I mentioned, at ESMO, there was an, an, an updated analysis of pro progression-free survival and overall survival. And once again, you can see that PFS was increased in the 3 plus cohort, uh, more or less 12 months, and slightly shorter for 2 plus, five, 5 months. Whereas in terms of overall survival, also you can see an increase overall survival in um, IHC 3 plus cohorts up to 21 months compared to 12 months in the 2 plus. And of course, this was an all randomized study. So it, it's hard to dissect the prognostic effect of the biomarker from the activity of the drug. But I think response rate really tells us that TDXT works so much better in tumors that express a high level over 2 with immunosochemistry compared to 2 plus. And in terms of safety, we have seen now several studies and in general, uh, just like we've seen in gastrointestinal tumors, lung tumors, breast cancer. The main side effect with TDXD is really nausea, fatigue, neutropenia. They are kind of related to the topoisomerase 1 payload. But we know that also interstitial lung disease is a key adverse event observed in approximately 10 to 15 percent of the patients. And in the pantumor 2, there were three grade 5 events, 1.1 percent, unfortunately. Moving on to the destiny pantumor 1, this was slightly different. Instead of looking at TDXD in patients with tumors that express HER2, looked at TDXD in, in patients with tumor that mutations over two. And as Dr. Pastore mentioned, TDXD is approved for normal cell lung cancer that has HER2 mutations. And so it was totally worth it to, to test this hypothesis in other tumor types. And
And so TDXD was looked at in tuesday tumor one in approximately 100 patients with different tumor types that had her selected HER2 mutations. What you can see is that the response rate was 30% across the whole cohort, 50% in breast, in breast cancer. The PFS was 5.4 months, median OS 10.9 months. I think hard to reconcile this data with destiny pan tumor or two. It does seem that TDXC works, works the best in IHC3 plus tumors, but definitely this activity is very intriguing also in her two mutant tumors. Durational response was prolonged. 54% of the responders remain in response at 18 months. So we know that responses can be very durable with this agent. And moving on to a, a different DXD-based ADCs, as I mentioned in the beginning, we are having a, a plethora of targets that are being explored for targeting with, with ADCs. And I think one that is emerging is B7H3. And there is a novel ADC, if you need them up the or IDXD, that has the same payload of all the DXD ADCs, but once again targeting B7H3. And this was tested in a trial that looked at the, the compounding patients with advanced solid tumors, including very high unmet needs, such as small cell lung cancer, and the activity, you can see the waterfall plots are quite impressive. In small, in patients with pretreated metastatic small cell lung cancer, the response rate was 52%. And the response rate was also intriguing in metastatic castration resistant prostate cancer up to 25%, in squamous cell uh, esophageal cancer and nosmo cell lung cancer. So we are seeing that ADCs can really expand their reach across tumor types, and probably one of the most uh, interesting uh, presentation of ESMO two days ago was the double antibody drug conjugate trial, a trial that was led by, by Dana Farber and that looked for the first time at the utilization of two different ADCs with different payloads, with, with a topoisomerase 1 and a microtubule inhibitor payload utilized together to treat patients with metastatic urotelial cancer that had previously been pretreated. So a very high unmet need. We know how, how aggressive metastatic urotelial cancer is. And in this setting, utilizing sustitution govitecum plus amfortumab the doting led to up to 70% response rate. Once again, the waterfall plot that you can see down there on the left is very intriguing at different dose levels. And there were toxicities, of course. Neutropenia was uh, the key toxicity, and there was uh, growth factor support that was needed in this trial. There was one death related to interstitial lung disease. And, and I do think that we need to optimize the safety profile of these agents, but really an interesting proof of concept study. And talking of toxicities, what I think we need to remember is that ADCs are complex and each component of the ADC can have an impact on the toxicity profile. The linker stability is key because less stable linkers lead to easier the conjugation of the payload and some more chemotherapy-related side effect. But even extremely stable ADCs can lead to unintended toxicity. So in, in general, the, um, the balance of the stability of the linker is key. And then the antibody also can cause specific toxicities. We know that uh, patients that receive TDXE or TDM1 can have cardiotoxicity. It's very rare, less than 5%, and usually low grade, but it's interesting to see that you can still see toxicities related to the antibody. TROP2 targeted ADCs can also cause rash and mucositis, nectin 4 related um, targeting ADCs, dysgeusia and rash. In general, you, you do see some toxicities related to a target, but finally, probably the most important part relating to a toxicity is the payload. And so we know that microtubule inhibiting payload
payload usually cause uh, more peripheral neuropathy compared, for instance, to topoisomerase 1 inhibitors that mostly cause alopecia, neutropenia, diarrhea. So in general, it's important to realize when we're utilizing and thinking of ADC that each part is key. And of course, another part that is key is the management and proactive management and detection of uh, toxicities, in particular interstitial lung disease. We're seeing some fatal cases of this side effect. And, and I think the 5S's rule, the 5S rules can really help memorizing a way to proactively manage this side effect. It's important to screen the patients, understand what is the baseline risk of ILD. Adapting the scanning, the second S, based on the on the profile of the patient, and I think with TDXD in particular, but also Dato DXD and other DXD payloads, we in ADCs we need to scan the patients every six to twelve weeks, no more than that, in order to be able to to capture ILD at low grades. And then synergy, it's important whenever you suspect ILD, and even before to establish uh, a teamwork in our with with radiologists, pulmonologists, and all the care team, suspending treatment with the ADC whenever ILD is suspected. And then the mainstay of treatment for interstitial lung disease is steroids. Utilize at different doses and schedules depending on the grade, but it's always important to remember that steroids need to be used in case of grade 1, 2, 3, or 4 ILD. And then in the future, I think we can do better. We can do better in many ways. We are seeing already uh, those optimization strategies that are allowing us to find the, the right dose for each indication, for instance, in lung cancer, in colorectal cancer, randomized studies helping us to, to understand the best dose. Drug engineering, finding a way to avoid early deconjugation of the payload to optimize the safety profile. Pharmacogenomics, we know, for instance, that sacituzumab govitecan causes a higher rate of diarrhea and neutropenia in patients that have deleterious alleles of UGT1A1, and we are learning more and more about pharmacogenomic and their implication in toxicity of ADCs. And finally, diagnostic tools. We are studying if the wearable tools can be utilized to detect ILD and other toxicities in an early manner. Beyond this, of course, we really want safe ADCs, but we also want more active ADCs. And I think many strategies are being studied utilizing bispecific antibodies or masked antibodies changing the linker utilizing the ADC and utilizing site-specific linkers that allow us to, to link a predictable amount of chemotherapy with each antibody. And finally, innovations in the payload. As I mentioned in the beginning, where we, all of the approved ADCs utilize chemotherapy as a payload, but I think it's intriguing to think that we may actually deliver immune active molecules in the tumor microenvironment, radionuclides, and even dual payloads. We can have two different payloads in the same ADCs. And so I do think that we recently moved from the first generation of ADCs, such as TDM1, to a new generation that is definitely more active. But I think there is still a newer generation waiting for us in the future that is hopefully more active, but also safer. And with this, I would like to move on to the discussion section and to utilize this wonderful panel of experts that we have to kind of understand some of the most controversial questions and, and dilemmas in the, in the field of ADCs. And I would like to start from Dr. Erica Hamilton by asking two important questions. First of all, in breast oncology, we're starting to have several ADCs approved or they're coming on the horizon. And so how are we going to sequence these agents? What is going to help us? And then I would like also a comment on the toxicity profile, because you mentioned that, of course, we're getting better. We're seeing less toxicities in the newer trials of ADCs. And I would like to, to know 
know from you, why do you think that's the case? Are we getting better at that? Or is there any other factor that is improving the toxicity profile of ADCs? Yeah, so I think your first question is a great one, and it's the million or maybe billion dollar question about sequencing. You know, I, I don't think we have the definitive answer. You know, right now, the data we have shows that single agent chemotherapy in these settings have a progression free survival of less than two months. And really, regardless of the ADC that we discuss, um, they have all beaten standard chemotherapy. So, in the absence of showing us that ADC after ADC is not the thing to do, you know, I, I am doing that. Um, we have some preliminary data out of ASCO showing us that perhaps changing the target is more important than changing the payload. So, for example, moving from HER2 to TROPE2 to maybe HER3, that that is a little bit more important than the payload. Um, but I suspect, kind of like CDK4-6 resistance, that this is going to be varied. Um, certainly, we have some suggestions that for HER2, it's downregulation of HER2 on the cell surface, that that's a temporary phenomenon. But I think we'll get more information about that. Um, as for your second question of toxicity, I think it's very easy to slip into thinking of all of these drugs as antibody drug conjugates in one class, but the reality that you highlighted very well is that these really are distinct agents. And even if we just talk about sasituzumab, prominent side effects counts, diarrhea, trastuzumab deruxtecan, nausea, ILD, and dado, um, stomatitis and eye toxicity, you quickly see that these are very different compounds. So until we really have an experience with each one of these, I think there's a little bit of lag time before we manage these side effects quite well. Certainly in the Destiny breast studies, we weren't using mandatory anti-emetic prophylaxis. I think we've gotten better at nausea for that. We've gotten better at recognizing uh, ILD. Certainly things uh, like steroid mouth rinse can help with stomatitis. Um, so as we get more experience with these agents, uh, I think we will uh, get better at managing the toxicities. Couldn't agree more. And I think it's very relieving to see that the latest trials have got lower rates of, of high-grade ILD. And of course, it's still there, so it's important to monitor it, but we're definitely getting better at that. And also nausea. I do feel prophylaxis is, is so key. But I would like to piggyback on some comments that you made about the, the biomarkers to ask to Dr. Passaro. Why do you think is the case that TDFD in osmosis cell lung cancer worked so much better in her to mutant, whereas compared to her to expressing or amplified? What's special about that? And then do you think that other biomarkers can help with other ADC, such as like TROP2 expression? Is there any relationship between the TROP2 expression and the activity of Dato DXT or Sasituzumab? Thank you, Paolo, for, for the question. So many, many data are now on the table evaluated in biomarkers. So uh, the first for actual mutant disease, so we had a, a preliminary data also of the activity in the two other expression amplification, but the uh, two mutant alteration in non-small cell lung cancer are prone to internalization, and this is the key to understand why at the present time fastidian deruxing is a very active in this particular any um, molecular driving alteration. Uh, moving outside of the door of R2 alteration, I think that the biomarket present are not so strongly evaluating the trial. So all the TROP2 trial use the, um, the evaluation of the tissue only in exposure way. This is why, because in the preliminary phase one, we saw that the activity of TROP2 inhibition was regardless of the expression. But as you know, when we focus very, very deeply the data and we split according to the subgroups of histology, drug alteration, others, I'm not sure that in the future we'll not use some biomarker also for those drugs 
that at the present time are developed for biomarker agnostic. And also for F3, R3 and patritumab. So the patritumab deruxin in eftinolang 2 will be the second phase 3 in the driver-positive alteration, EGFR after F2. The, the trial is powered without the use of tissue, but tissue is only um, for evaluation of a predictive other biomarker. But I think that according to the results, matching a response and survival, maybe the use of biomarker will be useful also there. So I think that the starting point in osmocellan cancer is a biomarker agnostic strategy, but I'm quite sure that in the future will be uh, in the role of a biomarker-driven strategy. Thank you so much for these expert insights. It's, I would say it's quite mysterious because we do see that the target matters, but at the same time, probably we don't have yet the right tools for looking at these biomarkers. And I do feel that we need more research in the field of biomarkers in order to tailor the use of so many IDCs that we are having and adapt sequencing strategies. So interesting to see the, the different ways that these ADCs get in the development in different disease states. And, and instead, I would like to shift gears a little bit toward something different because we know that ADCs are incredibly promising, but we're seeing that sometimes combination of ADCs with other agents can also lead to impressive activity and also taking them to earlier settings. For instance, a few days ago, there was a standing ovation at ESMO for a presentation in urotelial cancer with first-line enfortumab vedoting Pembro showing an unprecedented overall survival benefit. And so I would like to ask Dr. Janjigian if you also think that immunotherapy can have a role added to ADCs in gastrointestinal malignancies, and also if you think, if you envision these agents to reach earlier lines of treatments. Yeah, absolutely. You know, GI tumor is very similar to urothelial cancer where patients uh, decompensate relatively quickly in their course. So if you're going to uh, use aggressive combination strategies, it's best to do it early in the disease, perhaps even in early stage disease, uh, but certainly in frontline setting, the data suggests that the depth of oral response rate actually translates to better survival. So our strategies have really uh, looked at targeting, particularly in gastric cancer, where uh, in large phase three studies, only about 40% of patients even go on to get second line therapy. Uh, we really targeted um, early uh, and frontline patients with a combination of PD-1 plus HER2 blockade. Now, this was based on our uh, phase three keynote at 11 data showing benefit uh, and dramatic uh, uh, depth, increasing depth and response. Now we're translating it to trastuzumab deroxtecan. We demonstrated that combination with other chemotherapies such as capecitabine, it's safe and tolerable. That's capecitabine is the backbone of all GI uh, cancers uh, and is very effective chemotherapy. And then we adding pembrolizumab and other uh, uh, PD-1 therapies uh, because preclinically there is a synergy uh, demonstrating with ABCC effect of TDXT and uh, immune checkpoint blockade together. Thank you so much. And this is so exciting. And it's interesting that capecitamine is, is so, so used in gastrointestinal malignancies. But I would say that also in breast oncology, we are quite in love with this drug that works so well and has, in general, a tolerable toxicity profile. I don't know, Dr. Pastor, if you're aiming to also test that in lung oncology, maybe there could be a role for capecitamine. 
But in general, I feel it's, it's so exciting to see the leaders in the field discussing in each different solid tumor type that ADCs are bringing clinical benefits. And I feel, of course, we are at the beginning of this era. We're seeing innovations in the way these ADCs are designed, in the way they are combined with novel drugs and so, so many phase three trials are ongoing that I do feel that in the next year or maybe two or three years, we're seeing many different changes in practice, which will require, of course, from our side, adaptation and training also in order to manage side effects in the best possible way. But I do feel this is one of the most exciting fields in drug development right now. And I feel lucky to have this wonderful panel to, to discuss this. Thank you all really for your expert insights for this discussion, Dr. Hamilton, Passer, and Janjigian. This was a wonderful program. And thank you um, also to Peerview for sponsoring this program. This activity is certified by PVI. Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash JTS 860. This activity is supported by independent educational grants from AstraZeneca, Daiichi Sankyo Incorporated, and Gilead Sciences Incorporated.